0: Yeah, what what I've just covered um, can be maybe a little bit deep. There's quite a bit of you know molecular biology involved and uh, physics. But I think um, maybe the message, although you know people may not may, may not capture everything, the message uh, that I'm putting out there is um photobiomodulation actually does something. It 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 seems is supported by research, is supported by research, not just uh, s- a cellular research, but also in clinical trials. And the one thing I didn't cover, hardly uh, cover is our work on say the COVID-19 infection. And I'm, I'm putting together the manuscript right now. We've got the data, we're putting stuff. Um, I would say that it looks really interesting, you know, and it shows in a way the power, or you know the possibilities with light, using light to help the body, so it doesn't need to be a drug. It can you know it doesn't mean you know there are many ways maybe of doing it. But this is showing the light's ability to do several things: um, viral in, inhibition, um, healing of the body when it's kind of damaged or or, or lesion, and so they reduce inflammation. These are like the three cornerstones of addressing COVID-19. But this is just on the body we're talking about the brain. That's all. Yeah, it is, um, you know, when you get to do the fundamental mechanisms, right down to the cells, the mitochondria, which is ubiquitous, these are all the upper level mechanisms that are happening uh, that can help the, the body and the brain.
1: This is the Roscoe's Wetsuit Neuro Podcast, the neurohacking show where we
0: teach you how to optimize your cognition. Keep up to date at Roscoe'sWetsuitNeuro.com.
1: Now here's your host, Toby Passman. All right. Welcome everyone to a new episode of the Roscoe's Wetsuit Neuro Podcast. I am your host, Toby Passman. On the show with us today, we have a very special guest, Dr. Lou Lim. Dr. Lim is an engineer with an interest in quantum mechanics, and he holds diplomas in medical neuroscience and business and accountancy. He's a recognized expert in the field of photobiomodulation, and he has a passion for designing unique photobiomodulation devices which improve one's quality of life. And you may know him as the founder and CEO of v So Dr. Lim, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you, Toby. Thanks for inviting me.
1: So I want to hear, what's what was your introduction to light therapy? When did you first, do you remember when you first heard about it, when you first realized that that this could actually be something that you take really seriously in, in research?
0: Yeah, this started back in the mid 1990s. Um, was actually based in in California in the Silicon Valley, doing things things that are to do with displays um, and you know LCDs and projection projectors and stuff like that. And also we had a chance to play around with lasers. And at that time, uh, you got to know that um, photobiomodulations you know, started way back in, in, the, in, the, in the 60s. You know, it was discovered by accident, but a lot of experiments have been conducted since then. And the Russians were really, the Russians and the people in Eastern Europe were the dominant um, knowledge leaders at the time. But um, when I came across this, there were discussion in, in Russian literature and some of it in starting to find its way in the English language. So, So I experimented with lasers um, and uh, the Russians were discussing about injecting light into your blood circulatory system, to the vein and get its outcomes. You know, uh, your blood circulation improves and get better outcomes in terms of overall resilience to diseases and recovery and uh, better markers for your cardiovascular system recovery from surgery, and a bunch of good things. But if you understand uh, red light, red lasers, you kind of understand even at the time that you can penetrate the membrane of your skin. So, so there is an opportunity uh, not to not to need to inject this light into your vein. You can just you know shine into your skin at appropriate dose or, or power, um, it gets into, into inside your system. But you, if you do it intranasally, uh, you need even less power to achieve that because your, the membrane in your nasal cavity, the mucosa, is really, really thin, probably uh, the most, uh, the thinnest among all the membranes in your body. And I tried that, experimented with very, very low power. You know, we found that you can actually make a change in the property of your your blood through microscopy. And, but we, I didn't really get going um, into producing a commercial uh, commercial device until like almost 10 years later uh, for several reasons. Um, part of it is I was too busy with other things, and, and part of it is um, the tech, the solid state technology was actually not advanced enough to to produce a consumer level product that's that's kind of reliable and do what you want. So, so we you know it's with me and a couple of engineers we started um, putting together intranasal devices, although we already found out what it can do uh, 10 years earlier. And then started to release them um, stealth, actually, pretty much under the radar. It got got traction by word of mouth. And we went on from there. We went on to develop uh, with better understanding. We improved the intranasal devices. We produced devices to help with um, accelerated healing. And then we uh, understood more about uh, the potential for the brain and we produce the home, uh, you know, the first home use um, devices for the brain. And that actually a lot of it is attributed, attributed to, I uh, guess, you know, my knowledge of neuroscience and brain anatomy what, what's possible as well as the, uh, the properties of light properties of laser and then no LEDs and then we went on from there.
1: So going back to it sounds like some of the earlier research on photobiomodulation you're talking about the changes observed by uh, microscopy in the blood when when there was light shown. What were some of those changes that were initially seen?
0: So um, very often you find that when if the body is not functioning at its optimum, uh, the, there is tendency for aggregation you know, of the red blood blood cells. So you look under the microscopy, if you're not well, you find that you, know, you know the red blood cells tend to clump together. Uh, some people call it a effect, but it's not strictly ruled, it's kind of you it gets stacked together like you know like a stack of coins. But generally, you find this come come together. Okay, it is, it is not always reliable because you have you after a heavy meal, you've eaten a lot of uh, fatty food, you know, stuff like that, or if you're under stress, whatever the reason is, you uh, you tend to observe this in the system. Uh, but whatever it is, you know, we we you know we actually uh, together with with my, the people I was um, playing around this thing with, uh, we actually conducted a lot of, actually a lot of experiments, like we went to several hundreds and it's been pretty consistent. You could actually observe it, uh, you can do your count, you know. Um, We never really published it, but this is what we knew. It was almost like a given, do that. Uh, If you're not well, your blood aggregates together, you do this intranasal, you put it under the microscope again, and you can see this separation and the blood seems to be literally flowing on the you know on the on, on the slides.
1: And with some of this this research that you're saying, both both published and the unpublished research that you guys were doing, like what what were some of the most intriguing findings?
0: I think what we are Experimenting right at this moment uh, would be the most intriguing because we are pushing the envelope of what's possible, particularly with the brain. And now we're not doing just simple microscopy with blood samples anymore. We're using fMRI. We're using EEG. Uh, we're acquiring, uh, you know, TMS equipment, transcranial magnetic stimulation. Uh, not so much actually stimulation, but to be able to observe. Uh, changes in certain blood, blood, uh, not blood, but uh, markers um, in the brain. The behavior of, say, astrocytes, for example. Uh, we get, we're getting more sophisticated We are doing real time experiments and see, you, you know, on the. Uh, we're about to start, actually. Um, say we, we we deliver light in a certain way in a MRI scanner. Uh, we want to see what the real time. Um, you know, response from, from the brain is going to be like. Uh, we've done that with EEG already. A number of neurofeedback practitioners have been experimenting with it. You might have come across this. So um, I think this is kind of fairly well established now. You know, you're, you, you're free to, to use this. Put a, uh, there is, there are like electrodes that are connected. Um, With with almost like uh, rubber tubes, you know, Um, and the wires in between, and you can put the uh, the headset over it, and then see what happens in real time. This has been experimented with the BrainMaster equipment. Now we, uh, I mean, some people do it for fun, you know, especially you have some. Um, certain equipment from BrainMaster, where you can show like um, avatar, you know, 3D imaging. You literally see the brain, you know, how the brain is responding in real time. Uh, some people may argue there is artifacts involved. Yeah, you can do it. You can actually have algorithms and clean up artifacts. You can still see, see real time response in EEG. Uh, we are also pushing it further and see what happens in microstates. Uh, Microstates is kind of emerging, people are starting to think that it is, uh, and I know that some neurofeedback researchers are actually doing this too. Some some work were published not too long ago. Uh, Microstates that were related to ADHD, I think it was published not too long ago. But we can, uh, whatever the condition is, we do see change in microstates. Microstates is uh, where you, you know, you can, um, people, you know, you, the investigators categorize them into main groups and, and they're almost like a, these microstates are almost a representation of how, how your full brain is responding. And uh, I think there's quite a lot to it. And so we'll see, we're, you know, we're pushing envelope to see what's possible. But now we're, um, yeah, this is just touching some of the things we're doing. Uh, some really interesting studies. We are, I think we just got going is on the effects on long-term meditation uh, with the neuro, uh, new model that we have called a neuro Pro, where you can uh, adjust the pulse frequency. You can you can adjust uh, the way that two locations are talking to each other. You can strengthen the coherency by putting more power into the phase, um, you know, the phase um, uh, pulsing, or you can reduce it by creating an antiphase you know, between the both sides. So there are a lot of things we're doing. Um, and uh, we'll, And what we found was very, very interestingly in oh, it's just random testing, the long-term meditators, or people who are sensitive, they respond to a certain uh, frequency, you know, that is outside. Our established devices are in 10 Hertz or 40 Hertz, which is alpha or gamma. And these long-term meditators are responding when they do a, a, a sweep of different frequencies. Some get into this temporary, like, altered state, of, or you might even say enlightenment. Enlightenment um, at high frequencies, like 200, 400, some even higher. Uh, so these are very, very interesting things. We, we. Have that go, going now, and we want to start another study, perhaps in Toronto, where we where the you know, the company is based, to add EEG uh, to see what's happening to the brain in real time with, you know, with this uh, meditators too. And you know, there's, there's a lot of stuff we're doing. Um, now the thing is, the more we know, the more we think we can personalize. The, the parameters. <clears throat> now we're looking forward to in the future to incorporate uh, machine learning to say, you know, databases or raw EEG data that's uploaded to the cloud to a certain archive and, and incorporate machine learning so that we can learn more, uh, even for each, each set of data that are uploaded for say a certain person or certain group of people. Um, As we learn, you know, as we change the parameters, we see what's happening and when we introduce machine learning, uh, we try to see whether we can um, actually improve the delivery of these different parameters. It could be compared against a set of normative database as neurofeedback practitioners often do. In measuring, uh, you know, z-score changes, or um, whatever it is, is open-ended. I'm hoping to expand this community of people who are using this new approach, so that people learn from each other and help each other out. And we might be the people that might be um, the discoverers of, you know, what's happening in the brain. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah.
1: So you brought up a lot of things. There are some, some that I want to circle back to is, as far as like the, how the pulse rate of the light affects the, the overall treatment, along with talking about the new NeuroPro system that you guys are coming out with. But before that, I just want to back up a little bit. And can you tell me what are the main mechanisms that we know of when someone is using one of these transcranial uh, systems or, or one of the intranasal units? What is going on with the light and the brain and, and what is actually resulting in all of these positive changes?
0: Yeah, now, um, th- you know, the, the fundamental understanding, the fundamental mechanisms actually center around the, the mitochondria. Um, virtually every mitochondria is ubiquitous everywhere and every, virtually every cell in your body has numerous uh, mitochondria except the red blood cells and what it does is there there are like, um, chromophores that are receptive to red and infrared light um, in the, the the electron transport chain the mitochondria is known you know to to be the energy producers in your body so they produce atp which is uh, the energy currency the cells and ultimately utilized by the body, and they're all produced through the functions of the electron transport chain. So the chromophores are there. And um, now here is the f- quite well established understanding of how the mitochondria work in processing light, and particularly red to near infrared light, because the action spectrum seems to be within this range of uh, wavelengths. So um, you receive that. And what happens if the if um, the cell is not functioning at optimum homeostatic level? Uh, there is often accumulation of nitric oxide. And when you deliver red and the infrared light, this is nitric oxide is kind of freed or dissociated from the, you know, from the process or from the electron transport chain, get released into the body. Uh, nitric oxide is known to be a vasodilatator which means that it relaxes your red blood your blood vessels and therefore improves circulation and there are quite a number of um, properties to nitric oxide and at the moment I have a particular interest in its ability to inhibit coronavirus replication I can go to that because we we just completed a clinical trial and you know we're putting together
1: I and- saw on your website yeah
0: so I actually you know what before I got into this uh, session with you I looking at our data I might say writing the manuscript so uh, there is one of some of the properties but it also does um, okay it improves the ATP it you know energizes the cells which is you know kind of Fairly common sense way to look at it, but the other things it does is I mean, people, um, you know, forget to look beyond that and, and see this modification of proteins. So eventually, it gets into a process of you know sub, uh, sub- transcribing proteins, um, which eventually leads to a modification of the DNA. But protein modification happens all the time. Now, what it leads to is. Uh, better motility in the cells. You, you know, if you cut down apoptosis, which is cell death. you, you uh, improve the brain's synaptic connection, your neuronal connection. Uh, it reduces toxicity in the brain. Um, it actually helps to improve your immune system. So there are new, numerous things that are happening at the same time. And one of the things that that of of particular interest when you're looking at, say, the COVID-19, is it actually helps reduce inflammation as well, which is a the major cause of death in, you know, especially when the Delta variant was around, you know, caused by hyperinflammation. It helps the body to heal and get back into, you know, recover. So there are numerous things that is all stemming out of the action in mitochondria. But you go deeper, there are some uh, scientists in, in the photobiomodulation community saying that, yeah, it's not really, um, it's all kind of debatable whether it's really. You're going to really uh, details about what the mechanisms are, but but some are some are arguing that it could be a modification of your of the water structure in the mitochondrial membrane that's improving viscosity or reducing viscosity and therefore better function um, in the mitochondria um, so but I think there's enough work to show that when you deliver red and infrared light you you actually you uh, if particularly when a person is not feeling well you get you know improvements in in the, the function in the brain, yeah, you can literally see, as I've said before, you can, li- you can literally see the changes in EEG. Um, there is also real-time changes in the blood flow uh, measured through uh F-neurs or through fMRI. fNIRS using the infrared light to actually measure the changes in the blood flow blood oxygenation, Uh, a lot of stuff that have been done to show that, yeah, it really does do something.
1: If you're interested in learning to improve your cognition through the use of nutrition, supplementation, nootropics, exercise, and sleep, go ahead and check out roscoeswetsuitneuro.com and book a free 15-minute neuro health coaching consultation to see if neurohealth coaching is for you. In neurohealth coaching, we review your current cognitive status and work with you to improve your cognition through the use of the latest research backed neuroscientific tips and tools.
0: And this was actually proposed by some of the earlier work done in China. Um, but we we do observe this as well. We find that people are not really um, you know well, they have some trauma in the body like a wound or you know in the brain don't brain injury, they actually respond better. And those who are really completely healthy. Um, I think doing this actually helps to maintain the healthy level in your body or your brain. So, it does
1: no harm, so do it regularly. So it sounds like it it might be good to maintain, even if you are still healthy and maybe looking for peak performance, but what you're saying, it sounds like there's the greatest uh, impact, the greatest benefit that the light is able to do to kind of restore function to the, the cells that are not functioning um, correctly or the mitochondria are not working correctly. Is that an accurate way of looking oh, at I it? I think
0: that would be... Uh a right way in general to look at it.
1: And something I'm just connecting here, I know like a lot of neurodegenerative conditions involve mitochondrial dysfunction and that is something that that you guys have studied a lot and other companies have seen uh, using photobiomodulation have been doing a lot of research. So what have you guys seen in terms of, uh, I saw that there was just a, a recent Parkinson's disease trial. Uh, I'm not sure if that was was finished or still ongoing, but what have you guys seen with neurodegenerative conditions like Parkinson's and al- Alzheimer's?
0: So the the major neurodegenerative disease is Alzheimer's and dementia and We had done uh, case reports and we have done small studies. Uh, We collaborate with some researchers researchers, um, in other parts of the world that that look into this. But you know, when you want to make a claim for something um, as impactful as this one, we gotta be really careful. Uh, Small numbers actually can, well, You know, you're just inviting skepticism, Uh, regulators are not going to look at small numbers because your, you know, the chances of errors are usually pretty big. But it gives us encouragement that this is possible. So um, we are doing a, you know, a large clinical trial for Alzheimer's disease. That is ongoing right now, Uh, it involves, uh, recruiting 218 people. So it is a very, um, it is quite a challenging clinical trial to do because just by the nature of you're know, dealing with people with dementia, um, we are looking to actually incorporating more um, mild to moderate rather than moderate to severe patients because these they're actually easier to, you know, to actually collect data and do it properly. Well, that's happening right now. But other groups have done it. There was one paper published in October, uh, done by a group in Texas. Sixty people. They show really good results. Um, just delivering new infrared uh, light to the brain. So that's all very encouraging. Um, a lot of the of the Parkinson's study is actually done in Australia. Now, they've used our devices, the NeuroGamma, and also in combination with some other devices uh, to affect the microbiome in your gut. Now, they combine that, they're getting some interesting results. Um, We are not on on our own doing a Parkinson's study because we don't have the capacity to do so many studies in order to They're quite expensive. They draw a lot of uh, resources out of the company. We're still still a small company. Uh, But we are doing other things, um, and particularly for traumatic brain injury. So we have an ongoing study at Boston University. Um, There are people, uh, researchers at at University of Utah that have gone on their own to study the effect on concussion from sports and things like that. I think they're in the process of putting the data together and publishing it. Um, But when you talk about neurodegenerative disease, there is this CTE, um, chronic chronic traumatic encephalopathy, which is a a result of multiple concussion. You're hearing more and more of this in football, right? Uh, Retired football. A professional football players who after a few decades you know they get into a decline and they lose control of the emotions and they forget and stuff like that we're actually getting really really uh, really interesting anecdotal feedback from athletes so now this is the word is going around that they should try this uh if you google i guess photobiomodulation cte or football you know athletes Retired athletes, um, uh, and there the effect on them. I think you find a few things. Particularly, particularly, there is um, he's being advocated by a professor at the University of Utah, Larry Carr, who is a retired uh, professional football player. So he's got he's recovered from C uh, suspected C T. The C T is, is never confirmed until you know you do an autopsy um, on the brain. So he recovered, and people followed him. And, You know, um, they seem to be doing better. But that's an area that we really want to look at. Um, So that's, you know, um, there are quite a number of possibilities.
1: Absolutely. So now how I want to talk about how both the wavelength of light that's used along with the pulse rate, how those two variables um, impact the light therapy treatment and also specifically different conditions.
0: Now the the wavelength is firstly is important because as I've said before the action spectrum for the response in the mitochondria seems to be in red, which is between 600 nanometers Near in infrared, you can say goes up to maybe 1500 to 2000 nanometers, and uh, we ourselves we use 810 nanometers mainly because of work done by other researchers. Uh, in in theory, the longer the wavelength, the deeper it penetrates. Now, light is part of the electromagnetic uh, spectrum. If you like, which covers Everything from gamma rays, which is very high energy, very fast, you know, uh, frequency, right up to radio waves, As you know, radio waves, long wavelength, they penetrate virtually everything. So therefore, in theory, the longer the wavelength, the more it penetrates. But there are other, other factors that have to be considered. Like uh, radio waves doesn't really affect your brain because it's out of the action spectrum. Right, so, and then there is also, um, take take the example of the sauna, infrared sauna. You go there, you feel warm. The infrared is causing your body to feel warm. That's because of the absorption by the water molecule. So, at the, you know, at the, say, even in near infrared, at a longer wavelength, you are, what you're doing is actually creating action in the water molecule. And that doesn't really necessarily help the cells to process this light energy and do this, this uh, fantastic thing. So all you do is feel nice, warm, and comfortable. That's not a bad thing, but it's got a different purpose. Now, like I said, uh, some researchers are arguing that the effect is, could be on a water structure and that often happens at slightly longer, longer wavelength, like uh, like there's some work published at 1064 nanometer wavelength or somewhere around the 1100, which is longer than what we use. Now there's another theory here is if you really accept what the hypotheses are, uh, is whether you want to affect the electron transport chain or you want to affect the you know, the water structure. Maybe both work. And there's some work already done showing that. And around 810 to 839 nanometers, uh, this is a window where there's least absor- absorption by water so you can penetrate deeper into your body. <coughs> Excuse me. So water means water in your body, water in the blood. Um, So the theory is we get a purer response from the, you know, from the electron transport chain in the mitochondria. So that is that. Then frequency. um, There's very little work done in frequency. Frequency. There's pulse frequency. Um, You can most of the work in a pulse has been done in continuous wave, which means there's no pulse. The pulse because the in the early days is because they want to cool down the laser. If you do continuous laser, it gets really hot. So when you break it to pulse, uh, you can get the power, the depth, and in the meantime reduce you know the, the heating. But um, new work is coming out is in pulsing, we are probably the first to publish a paper to show that when you pulse at a certain frequency you can see the changes in the EEG. Of the brain so we did our first experiment we pu- published it in what was it 2019 um when we passed 40 hertz gamma into the brain you see you know increased power in alpha beta gamma and reduced power which is kind of surprising it, it was non-intuitive um, that you can even lower you know some some amplitude of certain wave wave. Uh, waveforms like delta and theta.
1: There was reduced power when, when there was a gamma frequency, you saw reduced yeah, power yeah, in delta and theta?
0: Correct, yeah. yeah. Okay. And then we saw a greater connectivity o- overall. Now, we also did work, we haven't published yet, just on alpha. And we see, yeah, we see changes as well, but uh, a little bit differently from gamma. It's kind of more uh, focused around the the alpha wavelength and we see some in data. But so we're, we're discovering more. Um, the paper is very slowly being written because everybody's busy. <laughs> so we hope, uh, hope we get it out. And now, as I said, you know, you, you we have done enough. Uh, we have done enough, we've seen enough EEG or QEEG images to show that the brain actually does respond in real time. So there's an effect in view. And, um, and I said earlier that for meditators, they, they can feel the difference. So um, the frequency matters. Now the other work we've done is not published. It actually, it's just been submitted for publication. Is we are also looking at the effect on things like uh, the flow of the currents in the living cells. When you deliver, say, near infrared light in your pulse attenuators, yeah, we see very interesting things. We see both stimulation and, and inhibition. And the inhibition is necessary because you need that to control, uh, you know, the processes in your cells. You don't control that, you get the toxicity from continuous excitation. So, it's stuff like that Now, uh, we, in that paper, we also demonstrating the effect on the microtubules. The microtubules are the structure, almost like s- scaffolding the whole cells together, but in the neurons, it's believed that they also contribute to cause the integrity of the axons, uh, perhaps even the, Propagation of signaling and stuff like that. Uh, we, we find that, um, you know, we are kind of what we are discovering is complementing some earlier work, which shows that when they deliver high power lasers, they can actually stop pain signaling. And that's because of the effect on the microtubules. you just swell together and just block signaling. But when we do it in our experiment, and this is work done with University of Alberta, and squatters are coming out of Princeton and, and Italian university, um, that we are getting the opposite with low power. Actually, there's more um, depolymerization, means the the molecules are, are not clumping together, they are more spread out. And this is perhaps the opposite of what high-powered uh, lasers were doing. We just help with uh, maybe propagating signaling better and stuff like that. So this, um, you know, it, this is what we discovered. We're putting out there, and people can put in a hypothesis. We will do our own work anyway. But you know, this is stuff that's happening, and we, and we believe that um, our next stage of work is going to involve, involve pulse frequency and what the effect is. And I believe we will see interesting things too when you pulse it at different frequencies.
1: Yeah, I wanted to ask about that and how uh, originally you guys settled on, because I know that the couple of devices, uh, the, the transcranial devices you guys have, or you guys have the alpha one, the gamma one, and then the duo. Um, what was the original thinking behind choosing those two specific frequencies? And then also, I guess, kind of building off what you just uh, what you just said, you know, what what would be, or what have other researchers found with with pulsing the light at different frequencies, maybe in the slower frequencies, delta and theta, or into the faster beta brainwave frequencies?
0: Yeah, I think ten hertz was kind of, you know, if you want to start with a frequency, I think I think uh, ten hertz would be a good one because. It um, is alpha. You know, you, you do nothing. You, you know, you're not performing a task. and You, you relax. Uh, you do some self-reflection. You get into the alpha, alpha state, right? And the and that state is also also correlates with the default mode network. Now, the default mode network is also similar. You go into rest rest. So that's why it's called the resting state uh, network. Uh, I think these two come together and default, just by its description, is like a template network. And if you want to improve your brain um, and not be getting your brain to do so many things, obviously you want to rest and just close your eyes and get into default mode, which is also alpha. And when uh, theoretically, when you deliver alpha at the same time, you are kind of, uh, con- you know, s- maybe strengthen the state. And when you strengthen the default mode, you probably, uh, everything's related in the brain, you're probably strengthening the integrity and functioning of the brain. Um, There are some work done in animal studies, particularly done by Michael Hamlin's group in Harvard, several years ago now, uh, different frequencies to see at what frequency uh, the animal model, you know, when it was simulated with traumatic brain injury, at what frequency they will recover most quickly. Um, I think they had zero, they had like um, 10 Hertz, and 100 Hertz or something. And I found that the, the frequency that drew the greatest response or the greatest, the uh, fastest healing seems to be at 10 Hertz. So we kind of, okay. Uh, looks like you just deliver red or infrared light to the brain, which is normally just continuous. Uh, it's not as good as tender, so you might as well do tenders. And in the meantime, you can build on this theoretical base. Now, okay, that's one out of the gate. Now we found that uh, when we start trying to address dementia and Alzheimer's. Um, and I studied the, some of the earlier works. And interestingly, a lot of work was published in 2016 on uh, what what happens when the brain is consolidating memory. Um, it seems to be when the, when the brain is consolidating memory, there is a, a presence of 40 hertz in the brain or, or gamma. So, okay, you want to consolidate memory to help with maybe a cognition of memory function. You you want to follow this idea and f- deliver 40 hertz. But in the meantime, at the end of 2016, MIT and we were already building 40 hertz to to try to address you know dimension Alzheimer's because of memory. Incidentally, they publish in an animal study showing that 40 hertz actually does improve the behavior of of mice and animals um, and also when they uh, they were, there were, uh, this um, this mice they were bred with with, with uh, Alzheimer's symptoms and what they were doing is that these mice in in the cage the flicker lights at 40 hertz and found that the behavior was better but they also measured and saw that the markers for Alzheimer's like beta amyloid deposits actually reduced and reduced in the occipital lobe that processes this, you know, this flickering 40 hertz into your your eyes. So, uh, yeah, I thought it was a really good paper and it kind of confirmed my belief that, yeah, we got to try and deliver 40 hertz to the brain. So, um, what they also found, uh, they developed a theory that for hertz actually activate the good type of microglia. Microglia is a is a group of brain cells that help to remove the debris in the brain and unwanted deposits and stuff like that. Without, uh, so this group, the B group actually does not cause inflammation, which is different from the other group. And uh, that helps strengthen the theory. So we did, okay, if you're gonna do a study uh, for Alzheimer's. We actually had good results for 10 Hertz already for dementia in this case report, but let's do 40 Hertz, you know? Um, So we did another, uh, actually UCSF, (coughs) Professor Denechel of UCSF published her own work using 40 Hertz, the gamma, and she incorporated fMRI and found that, yeah, this group of eight people actually improved in their cognitive measures and the fMRI over 12 weeks, showed improvement in connectivity in the default mode at 40 hertz. So that's why our Alzheimer study is we built around delivering 40 hertz near infrared light to the brain. So that's um, kind of now we are discovering that okay, other frequencies are doing other interesting things too. You now what what is it? So let's try with uh, meditators to see you know how is going to pan out and what's going to teach us. Right. So I think there's, there's a lot of to, to discovery to be done.
1: Yeah, so so the, the studies on meditators that you guys are, are doing or going to do, is that going to involve the, the 40 Hertz device or is that a different pulse rate?
0: That's the NeuroPro. The NeuroPro allows you to do a sweep of different, different frequencies. Now, the idea is, you do this sweep and a person med- a long term meditator meditating will hit is p- the particular frequency it's I'm pretty sure it's not forty hertz it's going to be probably above 200 hertz, and they get into a shift into altered state so uh, that would be yeah and we want to see yeah what does it look like um. You know, what, what is the, is that a common frequency, that, you know, that does this to different meditators? Is it very specific? But our next study is going to incorporate EEG so we can see, okay, what's, what the heck is happening to EEG? Actually, we did an earlier a, a study um, that, that um, we happen to have among this group couple of long-term meditators. Yeah, the brain is, uh, look very different. We treated them as outliers. <laughs> you know, it's so far different that we didn't count them into the into the data. But uh, yeah, our brains are all different and I think, I'm not a, a, a long-term meditator or meditator, or meditator, meditator by any means. Uh, but I see this happening, so there's something special about the brains of Long-term
1: meditators, actually, and that's something I've I've seen. I think from Dr. Richie Davidson's work uh, with right. long-term meditators uh, at the University of Wisconsin, where he was showing the the increased gamma uh, frequencies that they were able right. to produce. So, so it makes sense that there would definitely be something there. And tell me about also just kind of the rationale for the development of this new device and and why it was important to. Uh, create this new device and what you think, uh, what sort of conditions you might think may particularly benefit from from what this new device is capable of doing related to uh, the sweep, along with the, the different things you can do with the connectivity that you mentioned earlier.
0: This new device is, I would say it is like a tool that, you know, maybe you call it key that unlocks the door to new discovery. So we, you know, as a neuroscientist, and we've done enough research and work, we know that we know very little about the brain and what we know, and even the smartest neuroscientists will probably uh, only understand a small percentage of what the brain is capable of. And yeah, let's let's see if, you know, uh, as more people get into this, Community and do their work. They pair around with frequencies, or you know, different maybe on themselves or different patients. Uh, they will discover new things. Um, we, you know, I think collectively we are going to. I think the excitement is not so much that we, we uh, know that this frequency is going to do something to this condition, it's more like. Okay, let's put it out there and see uh, what we can discover with even a particular condition. Maybe uh, the response to Alzheimer's is not necessarily 40 Hertz. It could be different among different people. There was an unpublished um, work done actually out of uh, University of Alberta that we work with. They found that the greatest um, signaling seems to be uh, intra-neuronal signaling seems to be 39 hertz. And that's interesting. We never thought about this, but we went on 40 hertz anyway. Um, So that is, yeah, what else can we uh, discover? I I don't know, but for the layman who uses this, it gives you more opportunity to try on yourself uh, beyond 10 or 40 hertz. Who knows? You know, you learn that uh, maybe a certain time of day you have this certain experience. It could be maybe increase of beta, 40, 20 hertz or something. Um, What if you try SMR training and, you know, uh, SMR is what 12 to 15 hertz. And then the other interesting things that are being experimented with. with, uh, TDCS transcranial direct current stimulation with electrical stimulation uh, at certain pretty well-known group where they are uh, for say for stroke recovery is a cross-frequency coupling of maybe seventeen to seventeen to sixty hertz or something uh, give you the greatest response and there is um, work done with TMS that also involves cross-frequency coupling, we can, we can do this actually with the neural gamma. We can do free cross-frequency coupling and have it you know, uh, within a longer pause, you have faster pauses. So you have two at the same time. So that is all possibilities. You read a paper I say, this guy is getting results using uh, electrical stimulation with cross-frequency coupling. We could try it with Photobimodulation. modulation, the, the NeuroPro allows you to do that. You can do it with selected modules on your brain. It could be somewhere between the left prefrontal and the, you know, the right you know, parietal area or something. So everything is out there for you to discover. Right. <laughs> so you know more modules, you can move them around, so.
1: We'll yeah. Yeah. It seems like there'll be a lot of uh, experimentation and, and cool discoveries made when this new device comes out and and yeah, people just the
0: device is actually out the device it's out, out. Already. Oh, yeah, okay done, I guess we are not doing a lot of uh, okay we are spreading the word we haven't actually done aggressive marketing for it uh, maybe we should but um, it's not there. it's not it can be for people who just want to have the most sophisticated brain photobiomodulation device for their own and allows them op, you know, opportunities to self-experiment. Uh, or it could be for a really knowledgeable say neuroframe practitioners who know what, uh, how they want to train a brain um, with precise frequency. You know, if they have a, Uh, EEG equipment that can show them how the brain is responding, I think they will, uh, you know, give them even more opportunities to, well, we can help your clients, you know, you know that they're low, they have low power in a certain frequency. Um, See, ADHD could be too much power in in data, not enough in beta or gamma. yeah, we can reverse that by, you know, by strengthening the amplitude for for certain frequencies, or reducing the amplitude. So, Got it. Yeah.
1: Awesome. Well, Dr. Lim, um, it's been a pleasure having you on the show today. If if people want to find out more about your work, uh, the research, or more about VLATE, where would you direct them to? Uh,
0: go to the website. There are. I think it's quite a bit of information. If, there is also a separate page for NeuroPro. Um, yeah, I think we put up quite a bit of research material out there that you can look at. And if you have any questions, just write to info at, at VLight.com or um, I think you can, you know, do messaging or, you know, call the number, toll-free number, yeah.
1: Great. Okay. And uh, for those of you who enjoyed the show, uh, go ahead and like and subscribe to our YouTube channel. It's Roscoe's Wetsuit Neuro. We just surpassed a thousand followers. uh, So thank you for that. Really appreciate all your guys' support. And if you prefer to listen to the audio version of the podcast, you can always do so on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or any of the other major streaming platforms. So Dr. Lim, again, I wanted to really thank you for For coming on the show today to share all your knowledge and expertise.
0: Sure. Thank you for inviting me.